Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Scott Wingo, CEO of Spiffy and a leader in the future of mobility. Scott has appeared on CNBC in the Today Show and has contributed thought leadership to the WSJ, New York Times, and Forbes. He also hosts the Jason Scott podcast, which is dedicated to all things e-commerce and digital shopping marketing trends. Today, we're going to delve into how leaders can navigate the complexity of multi-site expansion. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Firstly, how are you? And secondly, to give a bit of context to listeners, can you briefly describe the journey that Spiffy has been on since its beginnings? Sure. First, thanks for having me, Pete. I like uh, talking about leadership and excited to be on the podcast today. So the the Reader's Digest of Spiffy is, I, I come from the e-commerce world. So I started a company, this is my fourth company. Company number three was called Channel Advisor. Started that in 2001, uh, did a public offering in 2013. Uh, so that was exciting. I got to check that off my entrepreneurial bucket list. And then I had my first Uber experience and uh, that hit me as an entrepreneur, it was kind of an aha moment. I was, I was thinking, all right, we've seen products go digital. We're going to see services go digital. Because once I can control my life with a button on my phone, that's pretty addictive. Uh, you and I have chatted a couple of times about the addiction of, of convenience services. So I was really wanting to do something in that world. And I had previously bought a couple of car washes as a diversification thing. So I married those things together and did a uh, effectively a what I think of as a e-services or, or a tech-enabled service, or some people call it on-demand car care company called Spiffy. So launched that in 2014. Fast forward to today, um, there's there's a physicality to this business. So we have our own employees. Uh, this is not a 1099 or a contractor type model. And we're in 26 locations and we have over 250 vans going out every day and doing services and 400 technicians doing the services. So I've been at it for a while. I've raised over $50 million in venture capital to really revolutionize car care. So that that's kind of the spiffy in a nutshell. Like all these things, what was the inspiration behind wanting to get this? You, you mentioned that you had the, the public company offering and seen the journey that, that had gone through. What was the thought process back in 2014 of wanting to get Spiffy um, get Spiffy started? The way I kind of think about my four companies is, and I have a technical background, um, so I you know not I don't have an MBA or anything like that. So I, I kind of just did entrepreneurship through grinding it out. And my first company, you know, did really well, but the addressable market was teeny tiny. So so over my career, I've tried to get a bigger and bigger addressable market and kind kind of take a this is probably an Americanism, but take a bigger bigger swing at bat. You know, climb a higher mountain is maybe a better analogy. Um, so with this one, you know, it's probably the biggest thing I've ever tried to do, and and that's kind of what keeps me going is, is challenging myself to a bigger hurdle and a bigger challenge. Each human being and each entrepreneur goes through different journeys in relation to professional life. And that really sounds like a, a very, very complex thing, Scott. And that's good. You know, the basis of today is talking about a multi-location business setup, because I know we've, we've had some really tough learns along the way. What was in the business model that made you think that this multi-site offering was not only a, a potential gap in the market, but also something that you could pull off? Because it really comes with challenges, doesn't it? It does. And you know, so so if I kind of look at my entrepreneurial journey, my first two businesses, I really didn't do any kind of expansion into multiple locations. And then it wasn't until Channel Advisor where where we got into it really through necessity because 
you know, you, you start to build this e-commerce thing. And then suddenly we had customers in the UK um, that were kind of using our software. And then they would get a little bit angry when they would want support. <laughs> so so yeah. we got kind of pulled into the UK as our first international office. And that was my, my first entrepreneurial experience of opening a remote office. So did everything wrong. Um, so the first time did everything possibly wrong. So then got better at that at ChannelVisor to where the point we have like 10 or 20 um, international offices. So so China, Australia, you know, all across Europe. So as I was going into Spiffy, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, all right, you know, how, how many locations are we going to have to have to like really cover the map here? <laughs> and uh, as a software person, I was kind of a little freaked out by that. I was kind of like, you know, is this going to be like 500 and, and like, what's that going to look like? And how do we do that? Is that going to, if each one of those is $100,000, that's going to consume a ton of capital. So that was, so, so there's a couple angles, like how do you do that? And then how do you do it economically are kind of the, the two things that were my main concern. The, the first conversation I had that really helped is I talked to, um, uh, it sounds like you have some friends at Amazon. I, I know a lot of the, because I come from the e-commerce world, I know a lot of the folks at Amazon. And Amazon at the time, this is before they bought a grocery store called Whole Foods, their grocery strategy was called Prime Now, which was a same day grocery delivery. And I talked to the lady that did that because I was tracking it very closely. So I, I noticed I was watching this really closely and they stopped at 40 cities. Well, you know, the United States has 50 states and there's probably four big cities in each of the states. So you can kind of get to 200 cities pretty quickly, but they stopped at 40. So I I had the opportunity to ask the lady that was running that program why they did that. And what, what she said was they did an analysis of the over 150 prime households in the United States, and you could actually get to 85 plus percent of them by being in 40 to 50 markets. Then I was kind of like, all right, let's let's shoot at fifty, um, and maybe it's forty. I, I don't know. So that that's kind of the backstory. Uh, even before you know, kind of circa two thousand fourteen, we started thinking about this and what it would look like. You know, one of the hard learnings we had at Channelvisor when we'd open up these international locations was. Your intuition is, all right, I'm going to open up my first office in London. Uh, I'm going to hire, I'm going to go find someone to be a GM there. I'm going to hire a Brit and they're going to help me figure that out. That can work. But the problem is that person doesn't really know the culture of your company. Um, so to the extent you can, you can take someone from your headquarters and put them into that remote location, whether it's another state or country, that you know, that's the biggest learning that I would share with your audience is having an ambassador for your culture there. When people think about that, they think about, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to go, you know, live in another country for five years or something like that. So so identifying those people in your company and then, you know, kind of saying, Hey, be careful what you ask for. You volunteered to go do this kind of thing. I'm, I'm we're really gonna do it. And then sending them there for at least six months so that they can kind of help that local office understand the way you do things and your culture. That's the biggest learning that I had from Channel Advisor. And that's what we employ at Spiffy. It's part of the the whole program for how we do this. Fascinating, Scott. Really fascinating. And how do you go about making sure that you're hearing people in the in your company that would be up for that kind of challenge? Do you have like a, a regular email survey? Is it a monthly forum? Is it just like, you know, is it part of your review sessions where you say, would this be the kind of opportunity that would be interesting? Because I'm sure those people are, are certainly worth um, worth as a valuable employee for Spiffy's. How do you go about making sure you've got a nice kind of regular uh, question going out there? Yeah, it depends on the scale of the company. You know, so when you're when you're 10 people kind of, you know, 
uh, in an office, you can just kind of you know stand on your desk and yell. <laughs> so that, that, that always works. <laughs> and then as you as you grow, you have to kind of be more um, programmatic about it. You know, so what we do today is we like to post these job openings kind of internally first. So we'll say, hey, we're opening up um, Austin, Texas, and you know we're looking for a general manager, and here's the criteria. Um, we would love for an internal candidate to 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 do this. Um, and so then you know, and we'll say. You know, we, we love to be as transparent as possible. We're going to open this up for for two weeks for internal candidates, um, and you know, internal candidates have the priority here. So, so now there's a little bit more process and procedure to it. But in the early days, it's really you know, when you're the CEO of a 20 person company, you kind of can tell. You, you probably have a pretty good idea of, of who is a candidate, and then you just have a, a water cooler type conversation or a meeting, and just kind of say, "Hey, we're going to open an office in Berlin. Is that something you'd be interested in, in, in going over there and helping us with?" One of the things I was interested to ask about was um, that six-month minimum period where someone goes in alongside the local. How do you make sure that those two people don't get in each other's way, Scott? And have you ever had any any learns that have kind of been, wow, we did it that way. We're going to change things a little bit now to, to make sure that doesn't happen in the future? The solution to that is always trying to anticipate what could go off the rails and address it as early. Um, so, so really early on saying, you know, Hey, uh, you know, person X, you're new. Um, you're going to be the general manager. Here's your responsibilities. We're sending over, you know, person Y and they're there to support you. And here's how we envision you working together. And, and you say to both of them, and do we all agree that that's kind of the rules of engagement? So, so, so having this kind of conversations early on and trying to anticipate where those can go off the rails, there, there's kind of an experiential thing there. That's important. And then checking in every so often and, you know, you'll, you'll start to see very quickly if it's not working because, uh, you know, if you're acting as the referee on this stuff, then something's horribly wrong and you, you got to get to the root cause of that to fix it. I see it. And, and, and do you know what, Scott, one of the greatest learns I've had in recent years is the fact that if you hire based on trying to find people that are like you or like your colleagues, it's a slippery slope. Like hiring based on values has been one of the the greatest developments of our business going from a culture of like-minded, similar people just having a good time together to actually people that come from different walks of life that have got way more diversity in their backgrounds and their thinking. And actually, because they share the same values, guess what? Way less fallings out, way less clashing, way less approaches that aren't in keeping with how we want to be doing business. And actually, that kind of value-based hiring, making sure you've got the values front and center throughout your hiring process and onboarding process, it kind of has really helped us go from like quite a lot of confrontations happening to you know obviously you're never going to avoid them when you're when you're a larger business but way less than before so I, I think that's an interesting uh, position that you described there how's your role as ceo changed during those you know during this you know quite sizable expansion years yeah and and uh you know having done this four times you, you go through these phases so in the early phase you're you're kind of a player coach. So, you know, you're out there on the field with the team, you're on the sales calls, you're putting out fires, but then you're also kind of coaching as you go. And then over time you become less of a player and more of, of, of the coach, you know? So, so now my time is spent, uh, I kind of separated into internal and external kind of activities. We're venture backed. So I spend a fair amount of time raising capital. So that's a big you know slice of my pie chart of my time is and my job is to be the spokesperson for the company and say here's all the awesome things we're doing how do i frame that in a way to persuade people to get excited about as excited as we are and get them to invest their dollars and and, and back us in that so that that's the external side and then sometimes that that falls into customers and that kind of thing 
But if I make myself one of the things that has to happen before we sign on a customer, then then I'm actually in the way now. Whereas in the early days, I was key to doing that. You, you have to kind of like the hardest thing about this, and, you, and I'm sure you've got some stories, is you have to start packing your ego away, right? <laughs> it's easy to kind of say, well, I'm the CEO. I should be involved in every sales deal. Well, you have 200 people. There's no way, you know, you would just like log jam the whole thing. And I've seen this happen a, a lot where people can't let go. So then uh, on the internal side, you know, my main job is to, to um, set the strategy of the company, share that and be super transparent, update the company on where we're going, the good and the bad. Uh, and then also, so that's a part of it. And then the other kind of uh, leg of that is really making sure I'm recruiting the team to get us to the next level and thinking out, you know, we're in 26 cities and everyone in the company's kind of working on managing those and thinking about number 27. Well, I've got to be thinking about what's number 50 look like and how, who do I need to hire and what do we need to do systems wise to support the company? You know, just to give you an idea we're at like, you know, around 40 million in re- revenue. Well, what are we going to look like when we get to 80 million? And it, and it's never just simple to just kind of say, well, just double everything. That that sounds good. But, you know, if you've got a manager that's struggling right now, uh, just doubling everything will we'll break that. But, you know, when we were 10 people, I was just thinking, like, how do we survive to tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I've got about 83 <laughs> questions off that, Scott, but I'm going to try and boil it down to three of them because I think you talk about some fascinating areas that I know a lot of the people listening will go, Ooh, yeah, been through that or going through that now, whatever it may be. For for people that have been in my position for 18 months, for managing directors, for directors and people that are going through big growth and VPs that have charged with taking growth, but have, have there been any methodologies or ways that you've found to take that step back from the business and, and make that call and hear those things? Because when you're in the reads, when you're in the mud doing, it's extremely hard to have the context of where things are looking like in a year or two's time. Have there been any good learns that you've had over the years, Scott, in how that can be done well? Yeah, and I um, I'm a voracious reader of of business books and 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 you know and also podcasts and that stuff. And I know you'll ask some questions about that, but you know a lot of the when you're at it your first time, you don't you lack the vocabulary, right? So you you don't know what you don't know, and then you don't have like good case studies. And case studies um, are my favorite ones. So so some of my favorite business books are. Um, there and there's kind of two of them, right? There's the 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 easy ones are the big wins. So you know, one of my f- first favorite one early ones was Hard Drive about Bill Gates and Microsoft. And um, another really good one is how Walmart got to be started. There's a good one on Amazon. There's a good one on eBay. Pick your favorite business, and there's a great book. There's a great there's three great Starbucks books. Um, those are all good. And you learn a lot from them and there's some interesting tidbits you pick up, but I like the ones that are more kind of like they look at failures and things because, you know, that's, I want to, part of what drives me and and every CEO is fear of failure. (laughs) So, so the more I can learn about what didn't work is super helpful. So I read a lot of those and those tend to come out of more academic settings because no one's going to be like, you know, look at how awesome I am. I I failed. It, It used to be that there was tons of books kind of like for fortune 500 managers. And, and you can get some stuff at that as a startup CEO, but there was kind of this, there was a lot of stuff about how to start a company, but there wasn't anything in the middle. One of my favorite ones that fills that spot in the middle um, is from Andreessen Horowitz, um, the Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, he, he wrote the hard thing about hard things. And it talks about, you would benefit if you don't have that one, you're kind of where I've you done that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it, and it's, it, I go back to it a lot too. So it's got, it's broken up into little chapters. Like, like one, I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs and, and you're probably coming across this one is simple things like titles, right? So you have 200 people. Should you have EVPs, SVPs, MDs, 
<laughs> and what are the trade-offs of that? Because it's easy as an entrepreneur to be like, sure, whatever title you want. And then you look around and, you know, and you've got like a, a 200 person company and you've got 50 EVPs and then it actually causes problems. So, 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 so that, that's a really good one. So, so I just consume a lot of that stuff and that's been super helpful um, to give me, you know, the vocabulary and the case studies and, and that kind of thing. Part of being an entrepreneur is you're putting yourself out there and you're, you're signing up for, for doing whatever it takes to be successful. Right. So if, if I had, uh, you know, I could have been, I could have gone, gotten a job and be a coder and just kind of sit in my cubicle. And, and, you know, there's a certain draw to that, that, that is, uh, there, but then, you know, I would have had the most boring life ever. So, so I, I chose the entrepreneurial path. Uh, and you know, the, the biggest surprise to me as a technical founder was, um, and everyone goes through this, it's kind of like, well, I just want to build a product and then make it really, really awesome. That That's the engineering thing, right? And then people will come and that last part doesn't really work that way. <laughs> so you have to build a great product, but then you have to figure out, then the sales and marketing thing has to be there. So that was my first, in my first company, my first realization was like, hey, I'm going to have to learn about this thing called sales and marketing and, and get, you know, and understand it and get good at it. There's an author I like, and he, he calls it skill stacking. So, so I started in my skill stack was writing code and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I've had to like really add tons of skills on top of that to, to get to where I am. Uh, and the first set that I had to really work on was, you know, sales and marketing. Like how do you, just cause you, there, there's all these classic examples of having a great product and no one, unfortunately the world is not set up where people just knock down your door to get to great products. So you have to put it out there. You have to figure out your audience and then you have to persuade them to, to buy. Yeah. I, I get that completely. And do you know what, Scott, as you were saying that it was just, I, I've worked in technology staffing and recruitment for, 19 odd years now mm -hmm. and um I've, I've always before you said that that it never hit home but i realized that there were so many companies that i've worked with over the years creating great things exciting sometimes life-changing things but really having little or no sales marketing function that was allowing the world to appreciate what the hell they were doing we talk about it a lot within our business where we say like we've got to a certain level but we're going through some seismic strategic shifts and changes this year which are at points you're going to feel uncomfortable with it and i think as long as you're talking about the expectation management about the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable for periods then that's kind of half the battle and it seems like you came to that kind of self-realization about that exact thing right yeah and we we do that all the time um the people that don't work that don't fit in and and you know kind of to the cultural fit at, at companies i've started they want the same thing every day and you know the, the startups that we're in and even, even, you know, like you, we're in a very dynamic market. And part of the fun is that dynamicism. Now there's a scary side to it too, because I can't exactly tell you what the world is going to look like in six months. Um, you know, I can, I can tell you where we want to go and I can tell you where we want to go. Isn't where we'll be, <laughs> but you know, that's part of the fun is like, let's go on that journey together and figure it out. And then whatever comes our way, be it a recession, a pandemic, we've had a lot of interesting curveballs thrown at us lately. Uh, we, we will figure out together how to navigate through that. And I think it used to be big businesses were immune from that, but, but I think that's part of what's hurting them. Like the big IBMs and those types of companies is, you know, even they're not immune from that anymore. Every, every, Every business is going through just massive disruption and change, and those are going to be the folks that that survive that can be very uh, adaptive. One of the things I was also interested to ask you about, seeing something you touched upon earlier, is now the business is the size that it is, Scott. Um, as you say, forty million revenue a year. How far ahead are you thinking and planning? 
Yeah, I have to be able to kind of uh, move seamlessly in and out of that. So, you know, um, there's a lot of like, how do we, you know, I'm talking to you on the last day of the quarter. Uh, so, so there's a lot of thinking of like, how do we hit this quarter and, and what's next month going to look like? And, and are we lining up on that? But then I always keep a three to five month, just kind of like a little spreadsheet and where I kind of, you know, I'll do the top line and kind of like what I would like that to look like. But then there's, you know, in our business, I need to think about, well, in 2024, how many cities will we be in? How many technicians do we need? How many trucks? What's that look like? So, so I'm, I'm always kind of keeping an eye on that as well. And then I think, what can I mediate today to make sure that we, we don't flub that and, and that we can, we can get to that point? So I would say probably 80-20. I spend 80% of time in the, the current now, 20% of the time kind of thinking forward. Um, you mentioned skill stacking, which is fascinating. You mentioned accompanying salespeople as a practical learning by osmosis type of setup, which is why we've always wanted to make sure that we maintain a with a graduate business like ours. We want people to be able to learning by their colleagues and people that they're hearing and listening and, and talking to every single day. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated, and I'm like you, a big reader. Thankfully, the majority of those that you mentioned, I've, I've, I've gone through and taken some, some valuable learns away. One of the biggest books I don't know if you've come across, Scott, which is I, I think is so prevalent for any entrepreneur going through growth is Who Not How by mm-hmm. Benjamin Hardy. Have you come across that one? Um, just I've read like, uh, really, snippets of it. I haven't read the whole thing. I, like, it starts with the intro, and I thought, how is this, this going to get any more expansive? Because the idea is pretty primitive. Like, If you're a technology leader and you're like, well, I've got a brilliant piece of business here, but ooh, um, I'm probably going to need to sell that. I think we're all in tune a little bit from the school system where you've got to do all the exams and you've got to do it all on yourself to go, right, how am I going to do this? Whereas the argument from uh, Ben Hardy is like, no, just flip that question to go, who's going to be the person whose expertise I need to be able to do this? It's a brilliant, brilliant mindset shift because it relates completely from your personal life. Like, oh, should I do my own? Uh, yeah, let me spend the next two weekends doing my own taxes to why don't I just pay and find a good accountant, trusted accountant to do those for me. They're going to be better at it too. And I'm going to have my kind of time back. So it talks about freedom of time and these kind of things. I think for anyone going through that growth phase is, is a really, really great book to read. And like myself, listening to it, Audible book as well at the moment. But the question I was going to get around to asking um, Scott was, you mentioned a couple of methodologies, reading, you mentioned learning by osmosis. Have you found any other, um, and, and of course, the one that I shouldn't understate is going through and doing it. You've done this three times before. This is your fourth venture as a business owner. Are there any other particular methodologies of personal development or you know, uh, enhancing your own skill set that, you, uh, that, that, that you could share with us? Yeah, so there's the the absorbing information to whatever variety you want to do. We talked about um, mentorship. We haven't hit on that. So finding my first company, I was like totally, totally a fish out of water and would have failed miserably if I didn't have a couple mentors. Um, and they were from the same university as I I was from, and and they have that university has a very small group of folks that are in, interested in entrepreneurship. So so that was a connective tissue for us there. Um, and I would call on those those folks a lot to for advice. And that was, I would not have made it to that first company without their advice. So now I, I try to return, pay that forward. So I do a lot of mentoring for, for young entrepreneurs. Um, uh, try to keep it kind of in the area here because I, I don't have infinite time. Um, so 
so there's mentoring and then I still get mentorship from, you know, I, some of my favorite things I've ever done is I've met like CEOs of really big companies and, and, you know, those are, those are just incredible moments to just kind of see how those folks do going to conferences. Interesting. So I, you know, in my world of e-commerce, I've seen Jeff Bezos speak and, you know, all these big leaders that, that you read about, but it's, it's kind of different to see them speak in person. Now we're fortunate in that we have all that, a lot of that on YouTube, right? So, so you can kind of like get that without traveling. Um, you can watch a Ted talk. Those are really interesting to kind of, you know, watch, um, you know, the, you know, one of the back to the skill stack thing, one of the things I've, I've been called on is to do public speaking. And if you think back to my being an introvert, that's probably like the most scary thing for me. <laughs> Is to like get up in front of, you know, I think I've spoken in front of audiences of up to like 8,000 people at this point. So, so, so that, that's kind of like a pretty scary, you know, kind of thing. It's easy to watch it, watch it and be like, oh, that that's easy. But until you've tried it, it's really, really hard to do. Um, So, so I love going to watch at these events, the, you know, how do folks do that? You know, how do they how do they keep someone engaged for an hour conversation? Just even little things like hand movements and that charisma thing, you know, how do they, you know, they're probably born with it. I have to kind of like work at it and, you know, how do they do that? How do, how do you, you know, how do you do those things? So, so that's another area where I, I find really fascinating to kind of watch people do that. Um, I've actually seen gone a, a couple of high level. I've seen several of the United States presidents speak and I, I don't want to go into politics, but that's like next level, like watching these politicians and you, you know, we all know politicians, you know, there's a lot of negative around them, but watching them do public speaking is just like, it's kind of like watching, you know, the, the, the best of the best at this kind of thing. And um, so, so a lot of that, you know, I try to, and I, you know, and it's all in that, that skill stack. So, so if one of my skill stacks I want to work on is public speaking, I'm going to want to get as much exposure to that, even outside of where areas where I'm, I'm normal. Because if I can get like ten percent as good as a great politician in the world of e-commerce, I'm going to be the best in e-commerce. Because <laughs> they're yeah. they're like you know one percent of like a, a great politician. Yeah, it's Scott. It's a brilliant point. There are certain things that business does way better than politics. There's certain stuff that professional sport does way better than business. And there's certain things that, poli- that that everyone could take a bit of learns from politics. And in relation to public speaking and kind of speech writing, without a doubt, politics is one of those areas. I've been a huge admirer and fan of the way that Winston Churchill's oratory and the studying of that. And actually, when you see the combination of the written word and his close ties with America, the amount of dedication and preparation that went into one of his speeches and the amount of annotation that you can see from that thing. I don't care how good you might appear to be at it. You are not just naturally doing that because it's a little bit like anything. If you happen to have a gift of being good at something, if you work on it to become even better, then you could be absolutely world-beating, outstanding at it. And I think all of us sometimes have been a bit guilty of going, oh, let me just work on the stuff that I'm not good at. But no, come on. What are the things that you're absolutely awesome at? And make them your own. Be absolutely best in class in relation to it. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great example of why that uh, embedding yourself in it. And the skill stack thing, I'm really going to look up. That sounds really interesting, Scott. But um, really, um, uh, you know, uh, getting out and immersing yourself in it and learning from other people is, is a great thing. So thank you very much um for sharing Winston Churchill always has the uh the cigar as a prop that's like a cool cool element of his speaking to <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely <laughs> when he wants it's to take good. a break you know he can, he can always take a, a drag off the cigar that's it exactly give himself a dramatic <laughs> create, a, pause. create a little dramatic pause <laughs> yeah exactly um and the final thing Scott before um, I end up what has been a really fascinating conversation uh, thank you so much for coming on because I think you shared some brilliant things is 
let's just go back briefly, if I may, to multi-site expansion, right? There's a business out there thinking about doing it. You've done it a few times now. You mentioned having someone on the ground to be able to embed that culture in. Would there be any other one or two pointers that you could give for the biggest questions that people need to be asking themselves before such an expansion? So, so another kind of interesting framework to think through is, is systems, systems versus goals. A goal is I want to open 26 cities or 50 cities. We're at 26. We want to get to 50. A system is how do I build a system to get good at that? And, you know, so what we did in our first one is we, we just kind of built it and we said, all right, we've built our first one. And now when we go to the second one, what we want to do is we now know what the first one looked like and we want to do better on the second one. So let's put together you know, in writing, and this doesn't have to be like an 80 page business plan. So it could be like a five slide presentation or whatever. It doesn't have to be the Bible, but here's what we learned in city one. And here's what we're going to do in city two. Here's what we're not going to do. That's always important. And then here's a little model of what we think that's going to do. And then you get, you know, appropriate time into that probably six to 12 months. And then you revise it and you're like, Oh, okay. We need to update this playbook. And, you know, in city number two, here's what we did wrong. And here's what we could do better. And then city number three. And then by the time you get to city four or five, you're just kind of like, you just go to the playbook, right? You now, now, you know, so, but that's the system. And if you don't purposely create the system and try to do that incremental improvement, you won't, um, you know, where the, the opposite of that is like, all right, I'm going to open city four. Um, let's just like pretend like we haven't done this before. You wouldn't obviously do that, but but you can kind of get pretty close to that if you haven't built the system for for purposely doing this. So as you do, you know, I'll kind of point it back to you. As you do this Berlin, you need to kind of keep some, I'm sure you've done this, have a plan, but I would keep a shared document, which is kind of like, what are we learning about this experiment? And what are we, you know, what are we doing well? And what are we doing, you know, what's a good eh, and then bad? And then how do we take this? Because when you open up, Amsterdam or whatever the next thing you open, you want to be able to go back to that and and use that as an input into the next time, or you'll just keep making the same mistakes. You know, in that systems thinking, that's what you're trying to build is this repeatable process that that is measurable. Um, it course corrects itself, heals all those kinds of things. Thanks, Scott. It's, it's, it's been so great having you on. Really appreciate it. And if the people listening have enjoyed it, please um, do give a five-star rating. Um, Scott, thanks so much for coming on. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Pete. And uh, I do uh, put some of this out there online. So if you want to follow me on LinkedIn, it's Scott with one T Wingo, S-C-O-T-W-I-N-G-O. And then I'm on Twitter as well. And really appreciated the conversation and love talking about leadership. It's been fun. Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great day. 